It's Sunday, December 10, 2023. I'm Anthony Davis. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can support my work and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five minute news. Joining us today is a democratic strategist, senior advisor to Target Smart, a democratic data analytics and polling firm. Tom Bonya, welcome to The Weekend Show. It's great to be here. So polling is one of those kind of fascinating conversations, isn't it? Because there's, there's a line that often goes with it, which is never believe the polls, which I find kind of interesting. And we certainly saw in, in the last, well, certainly in the midterms that, that, you know, and in fact, you correctly predicted that there, there would not be the red wave that people were talking about. And so this is a, this is an issue, isn't it? That, that time and time again, whilst we have a feeling about how, what direction America might be going, the polls tend not to line up with that. And then when the election comes, we're often surprised as well. So considering that it's currently Joe Biden versus Donald Trump for November 2024, Joe Biden is polling around 37% approval, despite huge successes in the economy and everything else. What's, what's missing here? What am I missing? <laughs> what, what we're all missing, perhaps. As you said, the, the polling... Is at a point where, and, and I'm not one of these people who says you should ignore the polls or throw all the polls out. I think the polls are very useful data points. I think in general, we're just using them for the wrong thing. You know, people will look at the polls and say who's winning or who's losing. No votes have been cast yet. And so when you talk about the presidential approval rating, you have seen this decoupling that has happened. And by the way, it's not new with President Biden. It's something that we saw happen under Trump where you see a bit of a bump early on. Trump didn't really get that much of an approval bump. He got something after he got elected. Biden got a pretty substantial one that lasted about half a year. But in this era of hyperpolarization, what you're seeing is basically everyone then goes back to their camps pretty quickly. And you see this hyperpolarized result in the favorability and the approval rates, where Democrats still, in general, feel pretty good about President Biden. Republicans, none of them are going to give him any credit for anything whatsoever. And then independents at this point, and I think this shows one of the challenges in front of the Biden campaign, independents are looking a little bit more like Republicans when you look at the favorability and approval ratings, largely because they're just not checked into this presidential race, which I don't blame them. That's probably the healthy thing to do at this point, still you know, 11 months out from from the campaign. But you mentioned the economic data and it's right. You know what we saw over this past week with good economic data released. This isn't the first time week over week over week we're seeing stronger economic data coming out. But President Biden's favorability numbers have been going down. It certainly doesn't help that there are two wars going on at the moment. And when you look at what's happening or really what's not happening in Washington, people aren't seeing politicians in Washington getting things done. And the president is going to bear the brunt of that with those who generally aren't paying a lot of attention, fair or unfair. Just explain to people how the polling is done. When we talk about 37% approval rating, what does that mean? Because, you know, some of these polls might be, what, a thousand people being phoned on an old-fashioned telephone, a landline phone. But others are a little bit more advanced with, with technology. Just explain what, what, what we're dealing with. There's such a wide range of quality 
and different approaches when it comes to political polling these days and public opinion polling. And, you know, the challenge is sorting through the good and the not so good yeah. or, 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 you know, there aren't frankly that many very good polls out there at this point because it's challenging. We have a internal polling team and they'll tell you the same thing. When we look at our polls, to your point about how it actually happened to reach one person, to get one person to get on the phone or get online or through a text survey, actually answer all of the questions the pollster wants them to answer. To get one person, they'll have to reach out to generally about 100 people now, meaning the response rates are close to 1%. It's it pretty soul-destroying, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's... <laughs> it's like selling insurance. You can't blame people at this yeah. point. Um uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, teach a political science class at Howard University. I always ask students, how many of you will answer your cell phone if you get a call from someone you don't recognize the number? And it's almost universal. People are not picking up calls unless it's someone they know. Even if it is someone they know, often they aren't. So that's one of the biggest challenge. And so you get something called response bias, where the question is, are the people who are taking these surveys actually representative of the people who aren't. And what we've seen increasingly is the answer is no, they're, they're not representative. And that response bias, bias can go either way. In the 2016 election, the people who weren't taking the surveys were more likely to be Trump voters. People talked about this idea of a quote, shy Trump voter, which is sort of funny to think about nowadays, given how loud and obnoxious they are. Yeah. Um, but that dynamic changed up until in 2022, where there was actually a bias in the polls and Democrats and progressives were less likely to take these surveys. So that's a big challenge. So we all get bogged down in the details of margin of error. You'll, you'll see people talking about in this poll result, you know, someone's leading inside or outside the margin of error, which basically just means Statistically, they can look at this survey and because it's a small group, as you say, generally about a thousand people, you have some polls that are as few as 600 people or 400, some they're bigger, 2000 or more. But the margin of error means, well, we're saying that President Biden is at about 38 percent approval, job approval. But statistically, that means with a margin of error of about four percent means he could be at 42 percent. He could be at 34 percent. That's statistically what it means. What we're missing when we talk about the margin of error is that margin of error assumes that the pollster is perfectly predicted and gotten a sample that is perfectly representative of the American electorate. And when you start to think about likely voters in an election that's going to happen in November, a year from now, just under a year from now, that's really hard. No one can do that to get the right number of younger voters, older voters, women, men, breaking down by race, ethnicity education, all of these different elements that are so important to predicting outcomes of elections, it's impossible for pollsters to do right. And so it's something, it's a big grain of salt that we have to take into account when we're, when we're talking about these polls. It's in interesting, isn't it, that there's so much data being gathered these days by Amazon and, and Instagram and everything else. And, and, and yet, you know, so they could tell us how we're going to vote before we even know how we're going to vote. They probably could. Right. But also they could allow us to vote via Instagram or Amazon without having to go to a polling place. And it would be as secure as those sites already are. And yet there is no appetite for switching to any kind of technology that would actually encourage more people to vote or do what, say, they do in Australia, where you have to vote. 
I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it, that, that voter apathy is still a very big thing. And, and you know, what, what percentage of people are likely to go to the polls this year versus last year? Well, it's interesting because to your point, in 2020 and the pandemic happened and there was this question of how do we conduct an election safely during a pandemic when in general, most of Americans had no choice but to go into a polling place. And I, I think the election workers and the election officials in most states deserve a lot of credit because they pivoted in very short time and they made voting more accessible. It was the greatest acceleration in voting access that this country has seen in, in quite some time, if not ever. And what that resulted in is over 160 million people voting. Far more people vote in that election than have ever voted in any American election. Not just in terms of raw numbers, but in terms of percent of eligible population, it was the biggest turnout um, in, in quite some time as well. And then what we saw was what happened <laughs> and the result wasn't the result that a lot of these uh, Republican election officials wanted. And so, and a lot of these states, they actually rolled back and made it harder to vote. And so you're talking about things that are proven to work in terms of online voting and making voter voting more accessible in general. What we've also seen happening now is around voter registration, where there's this national system called ERIC, uh, where, uh, they work to make sure that people, the registration rolls are clean, that people can register to vote, that you aren't registered twice in the same state, or when you move, you aren't registered in the state that you moved away from. It's something that actually prevents fraud. But what we found is since the 2020 presidential election, nine states, all Republican states now, have pulled out of this system at the urging of Donald Trump and and his sycophants. And so um, it's another move that actually now makes it harder for people to register to vote. To your question, in terms of the the, the likely turnout we're going to see, at this point, it's reasonable to assume that turnout will actually, as a proportion of the eligible electorate, will be lower than it was in 2020, perhaps substantially lower, which is, which is uh, shocking in a lot of ways. But for those who have been paying attention, I guess not surprising. And... You know, we use electronic voting to vote for Dancing with the Stars, for example, and then that's considered to be quite secure. So people naturally would probably migrate to that. But really, the big issue here is that Republicans don't want people to vote because they know they will lose. And Democrats want people to vote because they believe in democracy. And these aren't really compatible, are they? These are two very different versions of why you should or shouldn't vote. And, and they are being weaponized, certainly the, the Republican side is being weaponized. And so things that are perfectly normal, like mail-in voting or proxy voting, stuff that me as a European are, are quite used to. When it came to the pandemic, Republicans claimed that ballot drop boxes, for example, were illegal and dangerous and, and risky. And in fact, they are completely standard in most westernized, civilized countries. So, so that is a problem, isn't it? It, it is. And I think it's worth digging into a little bit deeper, because, again, when you think of the 2020 example, there was something that jumped out to me. It was about a week before Election Day. And as I was going through the early voting data, because we know because of that mail balloting in so many states that allowed people to vote by mail, um, you know, it was a, the largest proportion of the electorate, people actually voting by mail. And what I saw in the early voting data, because what we can see is actually detail on 
who has voted. To be clear, we don't know for whom. We don't know, you know, it's a secret ballot, obviously. But we can see this individual on our file has cast a ballot. And it lets us analyze the election um, as it is unfolding over the weeks leading into election day. And one thing that jumped out at me was first in Georgia, obviously a pivotal state in the end. We knew it was going to be beforehand in the end. You know, as we know, famously, Donald Trump lost by just over 10,000 votes, the votes that he asked people to find. I just for him need there. you to find me 11,000. <laughs> right. I mean, it's on tape. <laughs> right. He, he actually yeah. said it. And then obviously, uh, you know, Democrats picking up the two U.S. Senate seats there in the runoff right. a little bit later. So incredibly important state. So I was paying close attention. And one thing I saw was that when we looked at the early vote against so was a week or two out. More Asian American voters had voted already at that point than had voted in the entirety of any election ever in Georgia, which was somewhat shocking. And then what happened was it happened in Texas a few days later where you saw a similar surge. It was one of the, the big, perhaps underreported stories of the election and, and President Biden's victory was Asian American voters are traditionally one of the lowest turnout uh, demographic groups in the United States surged in turnout by more than any other group. And so I spent a lot of time after the election talking to Asian American organizers, organizing groups, uh, participating in panels, and really just hearing about the work they were doing. And the most common thread I heard was this sense, a lot of them as first and second generation immigrants, of opaqueness around the voting process in terms of going into a polling place, oftentimes when the ballot wouldn't be in the language you speak, and uh, and just, you know, concerns about what it was like in the country that they came from and thinking this system is not for us. Vote by mail changed that for them, that they had the ability to take their time with it, to translate the ballot, to talk about it, to consider their choices and also to not feel threatened, because this is something that we've seen Republicans do systematically around the country. President Trump was calling um, in, in the last week or so for his supporters to do this, right, to watch the vote, to go to places like Philadelphia and Detroit. What they're talking about is voter intimidation. Yeah. It's something they've done for decades. It's something I expect to see even more of. It's something that prevented these Asian-American voters and voters of color in general in this, in this country from going yeah. out to vote. Not and to so mention the Asian hate crime that had been roaring over those past few years anyway. Absolutely. And, and especially and, in 2020, yeah. you know, led by the president using racist terms to describe yeah. the pandemic and and yeah. um, and then in Georgia specifically, where there were horrendous uh, violent attacks against Asian uh, Georgians prior to the election. And so in that context, we should have looked at this and said, what a wonderful success of our electoral system. And this is something that we need to go further with and that we need to look at online voting and that we need to expand mail voting. They didn't do that. Some states did. Dem some Democratic-controlled states did. Still not going far enough in terms of online voting, um, but expanding vote-by-mail access. But again, these Republican-controlled states have made it harder to vote. And it's pure voter suppression. I think the difference is now, I've been working in this field for almost 30 years. They're saying the quiet part out loud now. They used to have different ways that they would cloak and talk about ballot protection and that sort of thing. Um, and now you have ample record of Republicans coming out and saying that they don't want higher turnout. That's why they talked in 2022 after they saw this great surge in youth vote, 2018, 2020, the same thing. They talked about raising the, the voting age. Yeah. 
it's pure voter suppression uh, and they're not hiding from it anymore. So much for the, for the free West. I mean, this is the thing that, you know, with my, my European perspective, it's, it's so interesting that we are in a, a system that is, that was doing absolutely fine until Donald Trump came along and said there was election interference or they started to talk about dominion voting systems or any of these things that, that undermined that vote because nobody really questioned, aside from things we know about, like gerrymandering and, and, and the kind of suppression tactics that were going on prior to 2016 or 2020, actually the American voting system was held up around the world as being one of the great ones. Yeah, that's right. Well, when President Trump was already predicting fraud prior to the election, it should have been the signal yeah. in terms well, of... he said, if, I'm, if I don't win, that's right. it must be fraud. That's right. It was a yeah. binary choice. It was a yeah. choose-your-own-adventure. If he wins, it was a perfectly <laughs> executed election. If he doesn't, yeah. it's obviously due to fraud. Right. Um, and so, it, 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 you know, it's no secret. It's not a, a secret tactic in terms of what they're employing. What we did see, obviously, and I think everyone is likely aware of this, but it's worth repeating, in terms of the the election and and any potential fraud, very limited instances of, of fraud. You know, we're talking about those that you could count on on one hand, maybe two hands. And almost entirely, if not entirely, I only leave that open because I'm not aware of any. All of the cases that I'm aware of where people have been caught and prosecuted were people who are Republicans who were trying to vote multiple times for Donald Trump. Which um, is the irony of the whole of the whole system isn't it that that actually the people that are claiming there's fraud are the ones committing the fraud and you could argue that even trump using this rhetoric is fraud in itself isn't it trying oh absolutely well and i think the other irony here is when you look at vote by mail itself it was something that actually republicans employed very effectively to their benefit in campaigns going back decades especially in key states like florida and arizona where it was generally used by older voters. And as a Democratic strategist, I will tell you the number of times where we would look at these campaigns where we could win on election day, but we would get beat by the Republican effort and successfully turning their voters out by mail. And that flipped almost overnight, thanks to Donald Trump, who just made up his mind before election day, where he told his followers that voting by mail is fraud. And what you saw was in places like Pennsylvania, where 70% of the vote by mail went to Democrats, 70%. And sure, Republicans turned out more of their voters on election day. It was almost enough to win. But from a tactical advantage perspective, for Democrats to be able to get your voters and turn them out a week, two weeks, even three weeks before election day, whereas I said, we have the lists now we can look at and say, well, this individual who was someone who was on our target list. There was someone we were going to send mail to. We were going to knock on their door. We were going to call them. We were going to text them. We were going to serve them digital ads. These are all expensive, time-consuming elements of a campaign. The second we see they voted, they're off the list. We don't have to spend time, effort, or energy on getting that individual to vote. And so Democrats were able to narrow down their voter contact universes so substantially in a way that Republicans had been able to do for really decades and Republicans are still suffering from that. And you actually saw in Virginia in the elections uh, last month uh, where Republicans led by the Republican governor, Gwen Youngkin, 
actually invested money in vote by mail for the first time. And it was it was almost funny watching him try to convince his supporters that, no, it's OK. Yeah. So he came up with some sort of cute name for it where it sounded like voting by mail was actually an anti fraudulent effort. Um, and they had some success. They didn't have enough success, clearly. And it's something that Republicans are aware of. But it's in this same uh, this same line that Republicans have been trying to walk this tightrope of of not publicly disagreeing with the great leader, with the dear leader, because that, you know, risks their political career. But then behind the scenes, trying to actually uh, undo the damage that he's done. Yeah. You may remember, of course you remember, but it's worth remembering that Donald Trump claimed he'd won the election in 2020 at around like eight o'clock at night. And then the mail votes were counted. And of course, the it all changed. And he actually he actually claimed victory around that time, didn't he? And and was because the idea of him losing was would have just killed him. And so he thought that by claiming victory, and I think Rudy Giuliani put him up to that, that it it kind of meant that he could call that the election was was called and it was done and it was over and he and he was the winner. And then of course. So just explain to us about when the mail votes are counted, why in some states are counted at slightly different times, and how it was that Trump was able to claim victory too early on in the day. Well, the mail votes by nature just take longer to count. Part of the reason is because a lot of states, they will allow a mail vote to count as long as it was postmarked by election day, meaning you could drop it off and, and the election officials won't even receive the mail ballot until a few days after the election. Um, that said, they do receive the overwhelming majority of mail ballots before election day. And this was actually a big battle that didn't get a lot of attention in the lead up to the election. But it's important because I think it'll still be a factor in yeah, it'll happen again. elections. It will yeah. happen again. Yeah. Um, there are many states where the election officials asked for the ability for the right. They, they they needed a judgment from the state to allow them to count the ballots before election day. So they could count the ones that come in. They wouldn't release the counts. They wouldn't do anything. They would just count them to be able to take their time. So it wouldn't be something where you have what we saw where people are working through the night, through the next day. People are out protesting, uh, accusing them of fraud because of, you know, they, well, this person came in with some sort of bag or whatever. These these bizarre yeah. theories. Yeah. Um, stuffing. I think they that's right. One of the, they they asked stuffing. for the right. And some states allowed them to do that. And those yeah. are the states that actually counted and released the mail ballot results, at least 90 percent plus of them very quickly. In some mm -hmm. cases, even before the election day results. That's how it could be and should be everywhere in this country. In most places, in those places where Republicans had a say in the matter, they disallowed that. They wanted the count to take a long time. They knew that they would lose those votes. And so it was a strategy to claim victory before those votes were counted. Because what we knew, like I said, in Pennsylvania, over 70% of the mail ballots were from Democrats and for President Biden. They knew that if the election day votes were counted first, it would show Donald Trump with a lead. They could declare victory. And then as the mail ballots were counted, they would declare fraud. They would say we so, were so it was a, it, They knew in advance that that's how it would play out. Absolutely. And so, and so Trump had, was, had been put up to this from an early, an early stage. No question. 
Right. It wasn't just his insecurity on the night. It was probably over, b- both, a bit of both both yeah. insecurity and yeah. and an actual uh, uh, scheme, which is yeah. can describe a lot of things about Trump. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the choice for next year, which is increasingly becoming choosing between democracy and dictatorship. We have to take a quick pause for our sponsor, but we'll come back and uh, do that with you next time here on The Weekend Show. Cold turkey may be great on sandwiches, but there is a better way to break your bad habits. We're not talking about some weird mind voodoo from your crazy neighbor. We're talking about our sponsor, Fume. And they look at the problem in a different way. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong, so instead of a drastic, uncomfortable change, why not just remove the bad from your habit? Fume is an innovative, award-winning flavoured air device that does just that. Instead of vapour, Fume uses flavoured air. Instead of electronics, Fume is completely natural. And instead of harmful chemicals, Fume uses delicious flavours. You get it. Instead of bad, Fume is good. It's a habit you're free to enjoy and makes replacing your bad habit easy. Your fume comes with an adjustable airflow dial and is designed with movable parts and magnets for fidgeting, giving your fingers a lot to do, which is helpful for de-stressing and anxiety while breaking your habit. I gifted one to my sister and she loves it. You've got to try the new Solano fume. It's made with a premium walnut barrel and an onyx-coated mouthpiece that has a slightly softer finish. Start the holidays off right with The Good Habit by going to tryfume.com slash weekend and getting the journey pack today. Fume is giving you the chance for 10% off when you use the code weekend to help make starting The Good Habit that much easier. Start the good habit at trifume.com slash weekend to save 10% off the journey pack today. We all hate wasting food. Now, nothing is ever wasted thanks to Lomi. I have a Lomi and it's changed the way I think about my food waste. Lomi transforms my trash into treasure at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into plant food in four hours. There's no rotting food in my garbage and smelling up the kitchen now. I only take the trash out on garbage day. Plus, no more leaky bags. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich loamy earth that I can feed to my plants, lawn or garden instead of sending it to the landfill. I can help the environment and make my life easier. All my food scraps, plant clippings and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge can go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food at home. And now Lomi's new app lets me track my environmental impact, earn points for every cycle and redeem freebies from Lomi plus other great brands. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash weekend and use the promo code weekend to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash weekend and use promo code weekend at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. We're back with Tom Bonya here on The Weekend Show. Uh, Donald Trump admitted on a Fox News town hall with Sean Hannity that he would be a dictator on day one of his presidency. And of course, day one means throughout his presidency. It's a bit of a ridiculous question to ask someone if they're going to be a dictator. But, you know, 
such as such as the the questioner in in in, in that show. Um, this is a problem now, isn't it? Because it seems that Trump has been brainwashing his followers that dictatorship is actually better than democracy. And an increasing number of Republicans are saying, we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. Convinced that that argument makes sense when clearly it doesn't. And, and my fear is that people have very short memories about history and that actually they think that this one man is the answer to all of their problems. But those of us who care, we know that he really isn't. How, how much of this is going to factor in uh, in, a, in a year's time, do you think? Well, I, I think it's going to be the issue. I think it's going to be, as you say, a referendum. I mean, effectively, we know it is a referendum on democracy in America. Um, but the extent to which voters internalize that or are aware of that is an open question. I believe that will be the central issue. Um, and it's going to be manifest in many ways, I think. A big part of that will be, as you say, Trump's words himself. For him to say that he is going to come in on day one and and be a dictator, and then mention the border and bizarrely drilling, which I'm not yeah. sure what was in his brain when he when he mentioned I, that. I but, hope it's oil. I, I hope it's oil. <laughs> it's yeah. open to interpretation, but yeah. Uh, but beyond that, and I think more disconcerting is what you see with this Project 25 mm-hmm. with the organization and an effort. For those who are preparing to come in on day one and just wipe the government and the bureaucracy clean of anyone but Trump loyalists and to bring in, and they've talked about putting together this list they have of 5,000 loyalists who will be ready to take power. You've seen his people uh, who expect to be in high-ranking positions, Kash Patel talking about yeah, CIA director. Yeah. I mean, he terrifying. broke some news there. I think I'm actually right, surprised yeah. that that hasn't gotten more attention when he said, yeah, when I'm too. CIA, CIA yeah. director. Well, Steve Bannon hasn't. seemed to think that this was, a, this was a done deal. You know, yes. you're going to be the CIA director. And, and, and so maybe we, yeah, we need to be talking about these appointments more. I, I, I we certainly do. I mean, the question is the stakes. Yeah. I think it's it's a big reason why when we talk about the polling, we talked about the favorability numbers, the polling now, most voters are not considering or even necessarily aware of the stakes. And that's the challenge in front of the Biden campaign, Democrats, progressives, and those who want to fight for democracy, which includes a whole lot of Republicans in this country, to be able to raise that issue. I say, I think it'll primarily be that there are elements, we think back to the Dobbs decision in 2022, June of 2022, that uh, effectively overturned Roe v. Wade and and paved the the way for banning abortion um, across the country. We saw how that impacted the 2022 midterm elections, where Democrats performed much better than they otherwise would have because of that decision. Part of that was just about the issue itself. A huge part of that was about the issue of abortion rights itself. But there was another element of that that I think deserves some focus and attention was the way that it lent credibility to these arguments that many of us have been making since day one of Trump's presidency, if not before, which was this notion of autocracy and Republican extremism. And I think a lot of people, as as Americans, I think we we like to think of ourselves as optimists 
and we like to think of ourselves as being durable and being able to sort of just get through anything. A lot of that, I think, looks like denial sometimes. I think that's what we saw to a large extent with four years of Trump's presidency. People would say, well, he's moving towards uh, uh, some level of fascism and autocracy. Yeah. You know, think of the Muslim ban and the, the cages and the border yeah. and so on. And the so Muslim forth. ban was on day five of his presidency. Right. So, <laughs> so, you know, you didn't, it didn't, for me, that was the day that he should have been impeached and removed and it Absolutely. should have been ratified in the Senate. And then none of it, then you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. No, right we, we, we wouldn't, right? we wouldn't in the same country. We wouldn't. Yeah. But what, we've seen happen is these arguments of um, fascism um, have, for the most part, not resonated, especially with what we call the lower information voters, voters who are not consuming a lot of news, who are not reading the newspapers a lot, and who are not really plugged into elections generally until they go out to vote. And that's where we need to appeal. And what we saw with the Dobbs decision was a lot of these arguments that weren't resonating prior to Dobbs. Think about January 6th, where the January 6th hearings were happening at that point, just prior to the Dobbs decision in June of 2022. And they weren't really breaking through. The needle wasn't moving. And what we saw is after the Dobbs decision, messaging in Democratic campaigns around Republican extremism and around anti-democracy suddenly were resonating. And I think it's because people had this shock to the system. They had this moment where this 50-year precedent of fundamental human rights was just taken away and Donald Trump was bragging about it. And so when we think about the stakes and protecting democracy and pushing back on fascism and Republican extremism, I think there are a lot of elements that will coalesce to make that argument to voters. Um, but certainly the work needs to be done. I think it's hard for people to believe sometimes that the stakes are truly that dire when we aren't talking about it literally all the time. And it is amazing that we're not. And, and, and maybe, you know, this is a, a conversation about American exceptionalism and the idea that, oh, well, you know, we're the U.S. and up will always be up and down will always be down. And actually, it's not like that. The U.S. has, has, has really lost its equilibrium because of Trump and, and his surrogates, who are all singing from the same hymn sheet, that there is a deep state and that actually getting rid of the, the bureaucracy is going to be better for Americans. And by creating this fear, this faux outrage and fear and impeaching Joe Biden and getting Hunter Biden in a, in a prison cell and all of this stuff, it does make people think that the left is as bad as the right. And, and that is and could be the reason why they put all their eggs into the Trump basket. You know, th th there's a point. You talk about American exceptionalism. And uh, for many of us in this country, and certainly me and the Gen X, you know, which is the, actually now the most conservative generation in America, which is something that's hard for me to believe, but true. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had this sense, the, this, this saying, right, that the moral arc. Uh, always bends towards justice, right? It's a sense that we can be proud of the progress that we've made, especially in terms of social justice, because that progress is this sort of inevitable march that it doesn't backslide because we have been lucky in this country that we haven't been exposed to those elements where so many people in the world have, where they have seen the backsliding. 
Yeah. Of or freedoms. seen a mainland war either, which is, you know, an, another reason why countries, certainly the UK, you know, all these years after World War Two, you still talk about the, you know, the, the fact that it was very nearly occupied. And that didn't happen in the US. And it's not something that I think would seem real or possible to anyone here who hasn't yeah. immigrated from somewhere where that was possible. Yeah. And so I think that has impacted our ability to take this and really internalize it for what it is, which is a true threat to democracy. And then again, somewhat ironically, the flip side of that coin is for those immigrants, many immigrants who have, especially those who have come from uh, 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 China, uh, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, you look at, you talk about the Republican efforts to sow fear and and stoke these fears. And that's really their central campaign strategy beyond the different tactics that we talk about in terms of voter suppression. From a messaging perspective, the one common thread with Republican messaging is fear. It's talking about And we about hear that these- on Fox and on Newsmax and on all of these channels. They are doubling down as well as on talk radio. It's it's It's... They're getting that message is coming from all avenues. Oh, it's it's twenty four seven in their echo chamber. It's the same. You know, you can set your watch to if you're in election year, they're going to start talking about migrant caravans and actually, you know, tracking these things as if it's this great beast that is approaching yeah. this country and you need to be afraid. It's talking about what they did with the Black Lives Matter movement and turn it into this fear of violent mobs taking over the cities. Uh, that's why Trump's uh, convention speech was all about law and order. And so was his inaugural speech, right? It was yeah. actually quite dark and frightening. Dystopian, that's how they govern. Very yeah. dystopian, very yeah. dystopian. But that's how you're able to convince people to give up what should be the most cherished element of living and being a citizen in this country is the freedoms afforded to us. Um, and fear is the only thing that can change that. So I think that's an incredibly central element. And it is something that is very hard from a campaign perspective. Democrats have never been great at appealing to the gut and the heart, right? We're good at appealing to the head. We can make those well thought out, well reasoned arguments. And when you think about what we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago about the, the dynamic between the economy, we can point to the economic stats and try to convince people that actually things are quite good. But if Republicans are stoking fear, doubt, and uncertainty, and that's much more visceral, uh, that's difficult to push back on. Of course, there's an element of that in terms of patriotism and pride. I think it's something that President B- Biden is actually uh, quite good at mm-hmm. um, when he gets out on the stump, which is talking about who we are as a country and what makes us great and that it's not that. It's not what Donald Trump stands for. It's not what he wants to do with this country. Despite all the rhetoric, so much voting is based on the economy and how people feel how far their dollar goes. And yet, November jobs report was released on Friday. Strikingly good numbers, 199,000 jobs added in November, 35th straight month of job growth in the US. Unemployment fell to 3.7%, 23rd straight month with unemployment under 4%. Hourly earnings rose 0.4%, which matches a yearly high. Gains in healthcare and leisure and hospitality and manufacturing and government jobs striking auto workers returning to work adding 30,000 jobs i mean this is this is a very important and powerful record and to all intents and purposes yes inflation has been a problem for people but 
how are Democrats going to communicate? Because I'm not hearing it currently that actually Joe Biden or Bidenomics, whatever you want to call it, is working. Two thoughts on that, if I, if, I, if you'll indulge me for a moment, because this, part, part of this goes back to polling and part of this is tactics. Yeah. So from a polling perspective, what is interesting to add to this conversation is that when you ask Americans how they feel about the economy, you said overwhelmingly people do not feel good about the economy. But if you twist the question a little bit and you ask them how they feel about their personal economic situation, generally people feel quite good about it, which suggests that dynamic from a strategic perspective is something that I think provides an opportunity for Democrats to dig into. And the problem is the media loves these more sensationalist narratives. And, you know, the easiest place to go is the sky is falling and things are awful and they turn this into the sort of uh, sporting event. Yeah. Uh, who's up, who's down. There's another polling question that falls in a similar lane that I think we have a great opportunity to push back on or at least understand with a little more nuance. It's this right track, wrong track question. And you've probably heard of this. People have at least heard of this at one point or another, where they ask individuals, do you think things in this country are generally headed in the right direction or off on the wrong track? And that's generally been an indicator similar to the economic indicators of how people feel, what's the mood in the country. And when the wrong track numbers are high, it's generally very bad for incumbents. The wrong track numbers now are higher than they've ever been. And that's framed in a lot of the reporting as how awful for Biden. Our polling team did something really interesting where we asked a follow-up to that question because they never asked the follow-up. We said, for people who said things are headed on the wrong track, we say, who do you blame? Biden and the Democrats, Trump and the Republicans. And for people who believe things are headed in the right direction, to whom do you give credit? And what we find is the overwhelming majority of people who say that things are headed off on the wrong track in this country blame Trump and the Republicans. And almost everyone who says things are headed in the right direction give Joe Biden and Democrats credit. And so it's not to deny that there is a huge challenge in front of Democrats and President Biden to be able to effectively, more effectively communicate on the economy, which I believe they will do. Um, but it's to point out that the dynamic is perhaps not quite as bad, or at least there's more potential traction for Democrats there. Um, if they only take it. Again, I believe overwhelmingly this election isn't going to be, and this is, it feels weird for me to say because I'm generally a huge advocate that we need to communicate better on the economy. It's back to the point that we were talking about a moment ago. It almost feels, I think, like it undermines the arguments about this being a referendum on democracy versus fascism if you then spend most of your time talking about um, the unemployment right, uh, or any other economic, it's, it's yeah. not, to be clear, yeah. it's not that I'm advocating for not talking about the economy more. Democrats yeah. need the, to There's a bigger conversation issue. to be had is what you're saying. It's, it's like- there, there, there is, yeah. there is. And in the end, you know, think to 2022, which was a great example where you had places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, where Democrats overperformed, and that's where Democrats were able to hold not only hold on to the Senate, but pick up a seat in the Senate. Um, Arizona, Nevada, those places. And then you had places like New York and California where Democrats lost the House. And the difference between those places where Democrats did quite well and where they didn't wasn't messaging on the economy. 
it was in those places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Arizona and Nevada, you had extremist Republican candidates and you had Democratic candidates who were unafraid to call them that and to make the stakes very clear um, and to run on that. Whereas in places like New York, California, they didn't see the threat. You're a New Yorker. You didn't think that if you voted for a Republican for governor, they were going to be able to overturn, overturn abortion rights in New York because they weren't. So the stakes were about Republican extremism. And where Democrats effectively made that argument, they won. There was an article in uh, Rolling Stone on Friday. Um, the headline was Inside Trump's Plot to Corrupt the 2024 Election with Garbage Data. Um, this is something that, again, because people don't really understand, and it, it talks about AI and various things, but people don't really understand the back end of a lot of this information. It really kind of falls to the person at the front, in, the, in this case, the mouthpiece being Trump with a platform to rewrite history or, or tell people something's happening or there's a feeling that the nation is feeling when it's not. I mean, in the UK, the newspapers do it. The tabloid newspapers do it all the time. They, they lead public opinion by nature of their insane headlines. You don't really have that here, but you do have Donald Trump lying through his veneers. And so how, how much do you think that side will, will affect the vote? Just kind of almost reprogramming people to think the country is in a different place than it really is. I think it's incredibly important and impactful. And, and the, the, the one place where I, I don't think I'm disagreeing with you, but I think putting a finer point on this notion in terms of the impact of, uh, that the media can have on these races. And this to me speaks to another one of my pet peeves, which is not going to be a surprise given some of the things I've said so far, but the reporting on uh, horse race polling yeah. And as we've discussed, like it, you, you, it, it's not accurate enough for us to be able to look at and have a confidence in terms of who is winning, uh, who is losing. I'll give you a, a, a great example of this. If you think of the Senate race, the United States Senate race in Wisconsin last year, where you had Mandela Barnes, Democratic candidate, uh, running against incumbent Republican, you know, extremist Republican who the FBI told at one point, quite famously that he was at risk of becoming a Russian asset based on his actions and, 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 and statements. And Mandela Barnes was winning in the polling up through August. And then um, there were one or two polls that made it look like nationally things were not going great for Democrats. And then Republicans started releasing famously all of these garbage polls around the country showing Democrats losing including Mandela Barnes. And what happened was the press coverage in Wisconsin and elsewhere tangibly shifted. And I understand that if you're an editor and you're sending your reporters out to cover something, you're trying to get your reporters to explain why this is happening. So they're going to write stories about why Democrats are losing ground. And there it was, well, they're not talking about the economy enough. They're, they've overplayed their hands. They're too woke. They're going in on these issues that, re, that, that voters aren't with them on uh, because the polls were showing him losing by four or five points. So they wanted to write the stories as to how Mandela Barnes was blowing this race. He lost by 22, 23,000 votes, less than a percent. The polls were wrong. And so he had two months of the media effectively uh, running a campaign against him by writing these stories explaining why he was losing when in the end he never was losing and in reality had they had a better depiction of what was happening 
in that race. They would have been writing stories about why this incumbent Republican senator was losing to an upstart challenger. Uh, but they didn't write those stories. And so I do think um, the the media in that way has a substantial impact in terms of the tone they set and how that impacts what voters are digesting as they head into the polling place. Do you think it's better to work on the assumption, as I do, that Trump is going to win and therefore it makes people... You don't have that kind of full sense of security that, oh, you know, Biden's got it in the bag. I'm working on the assumption that Trump is going to win. He makes the most noise. He has the most energy. And, you know, this, unfortunately, in a, in a, in a country where personality is more powerful than policy, there's a good chance that he could if he's not in a prison cell or even if he is in a prison cell, I mean, he could still win. The reason that I take that position is because I think it makes people work harder. Mm. And and I I feel that if you take it for granted, then you could be lazy. You know, I mean, I've spoken to people like, oh, I didn't vote in 2020. And it's like, what are you, nuts? This election coming up, I would say, and I don't know if you agree, is more important than 2020. Uh, unquestionably. Uh, this is the, the most, and I know people get tired of this because they've heard this for a while now. Yeah. There's a few subsequent elections that this is the most important election in the history of this country. But it's just a fact. The stakes continue to get higher as the masks are off and Trump knows. But facing these indictments, dozens of indictments, he knows this is his path out. It's his only path out. He is cornered and that makes him quite dangerous. I, I, I generally agree with you. I, I, I take a similar mindset. My mindset is that he very much can win. I think if I took the mindset that he was going to win, it, yeah. it would be almost too depressing and I'd probably be spending time looking for real estate overseas. But, <laughs> um, but I, but, but you make an incredibly good point and an important point because we have seen this and I think it's evolving now. I, I, I think you'd be harder pressed to find people who don't think Trump at least can win now, but it yeah. wasn't that long ago. And I would see this on Twitter or elsewhere when I would share something, even right after the 2020 election, I remember sharing some sort of analysis suggesting that, you know, we, we shouldn't be that comfortable about just showing how close the election was, frankly, about Trump um, being gone forever and just overwhelmed with responses from people saying he's going to be in jail by then. He's not, you know, he's done. Um, that was, I think, the most common notion among Democrats and progressives was that's it. He's gone. This yeah. chapter is over. Yeah, It's clear it's not. And yeah. and he very much can win. Uh, when you think of how close 2020 is, and I, I get it, a lot of people look at this and say, well, but since 2020, you know, that January 6th happened, he's been indicted. Yes, all of those things should contribute to him winning fewer votes. Why would he win more votes? But it becomes about mobilization at this point, to your point. And that's the disconcerting thing that we're seeing in a lot of the polling where it's a thing that I that I do think is worth paying attention to. Not the horse race, not the head-to-head, -head, but looking at the motivation and mobilization among traditional Democratic constituencies. We should be concerned that those voters are not very energized and enthusiastic about the Democratic brand right now. And that could lead to them not voting. Uh, again, a lot of time to do that work, and the stakes are not clear or not in front of most voters at this point. But that's something we need to change. If we don't actively seek to change it, then here we are. He would win. 
Donald Trump would I, win. I try and remind people of that feeling when people took for granted that Hillary Clinton was going to win and how it felt, certainly for Hillary Clinton, as much as anybody else who was supporting her to have the first female president. This was, this was a, a landmark shift, and it didn't happen, arguably because people maybe took it for granted that she would because she was up against a reality TV host. They didn't think about the fact that the Kremlin was getting involved and Cambridge Analytica were getting involved and, and Trump was getting help. It, 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 tens of millions of Americans who otherwise would have supported Hillary Clinton didn't come out to vote. There was, as you'll recall, this commonly held perception. And I was among that. And I probably contributed that to some extent. I was on MSNBC talking about a poll we did that showed her winning in Florida a few weeks before election day. Um, so there was this sense that she was just going to win because that's how it is in this country, that someone like Trump, a clown like him, couldn't win. And I'll never forget that. I carry that with me um, every single day. I have two daughters, not that you need to have daughters to be able to internalize that, but having that moment where they were 10 and seven years old and going to bed on election night, believing that they would wake up with the news of the first woman president in this country and having to tell them first thing the next morning that no, it didn't happen. Um, and having to tell them that they're going to learn what it means to be an activist in this country. And, you know, you think of the battles that people fought to protect the most uh, marginalized and exposed among us over those four years and how many of those battles were lost. Um, and the notion of having to do that again, um, when you have a president who now I don't think would hold back in any way yeah. to the extent that he did. And I think he did actually hold back to some extent. Well, he was held, he was held back. He was, and, you're, no, you're yeah. right. I think that's, I think that's the most important element. We've heard all of these things talking about Kash Patel. Yeah. You know, we've heard right. this, how, how uh, Bob Barr said over my dead body in terms of the notion of him being appointed to a senior position and in security. So uh, those people won't be around. They won't make that mistake twice. I want to talk more about that in just a minute. We have to take another break and then uh, we'll come back with more from Tom Bonya here on The Weekend Show. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Maid's bedsheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver-infused fabrics and makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver-infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get a better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing outbreaks and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code weekend at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. 
Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend and use the code weekend to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. That's trymiracle.com slash weekend to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back. When uh, Donald Trump took the presidency in 2016, 2017, he didn't really have a clue what he was doing, right? He didn't know anything about international trade, didn't know anything about diplomacy, didn't know anything about how to run the West Wing. I mean, it was a disaster. And, and for me, I've said this before recently, but when Sean Spicer came out and did that crowd size kind of press conference moment where he was like, it was the biggest period. I was like, "Uh oh, like this is, this is not going to be what we were thinking." And 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 many people, including Barack Obama, thought that Trump might rise to the occasion and into the office, and and that never happened. Instead, he suggested drinking bleach or maybe shining a light inside the body, which might cure COVID. So we had all that to deal with. Not to mention the protests, the national guard on the street, you know, everything that went with that. This time is different, isn't it? And he has openly admitted that he now knows that it has to be loyalists in every position in order to get things done. This means that the US, the protections that we had in place before, i.e. John Kelly and Mark Milley and, and James Mattis and all these people, they won't get a look in. This, this is going to be king of the world, Trump doing his Putin impression, doing his Xi Jinping impression. That's who he wants to be. That's what he wants for America. He's told us that when we think of his heroes and Victor Orban and, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, and the plan is there again, they're being clear about this. None of this is to your point. There was some innuendo or some suggestion. He said it himself in 2016. He said that he was going to win the primary and then he would moderate. He would move to the middle. He said it publicly in in the, the primary election. And then I think he realized they didn't have to. And I think he 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 fell in love with these sort of dictatorial tendencies, going to these rallies and seeing how people reacted to threats of jailing his opponent um, and, and, and railing against the media and demonizing them and whipping them into a frenzy. He fell in love with that. And then he realized it could actually put him into a position, the likes of which I don't think even he thought that he would ever be able to get to in terms of the adulation that he gets from, from the Republican rank and file. And so to your point, the stories that we've heard of those people who stopped him from doing some very frightening things, things that would have started wars, uh, things that would have taken away even more freedoms from people in this country and were stopped by those perhaps more mainstream Republicans who found their way into his administration because, to your point, they didn't have anyone among the Trumpists who actually knew how to do anything, how to run government. At this point, when you see this Project 25 that they are putting together, it is clear, they've been clear about this, that their plan is to ensure that they have only loyalists at every level of the government, not just in these positions of political appointees, throughout the bureaucracy, which by itself would be enough to, to wreak havoc in this country. 
but even among the rank and file bureaucracy. They talk about several thousand Trump loyalists who they've identified and will be ready to take over on day one. And that's something that should be incredibly frightening to every American. Putin on Friday announced he will be continuing on for another six years. Nobody gets a say. It's just the way he goes. He's already done 21, I think. This is what Trump wants. And, and I think maybe we need to start talking in the language that if Trump was to win and they were to put the Project 2025 in motion, which is already written and you can download it, it's nearly a thousand pages of this far-right Christian nationalist rhetoric for shutting down all of these institutions and rebuild, rebuilding it in Trump's image. But there would never be another election again in the U.S. This is, I think, something that's missing, that, that you know, the chance of you actually getting a free vote after another four years of Donald Trump is, is very slim, if impossible. It's, it's my greatest concern, certainly. I think we've heard, we've heard many raising this concern. I think we don't look at Donald Trump and think he's the kind of person who is just going to go quietly and cede power. We know that he, he, he didn't want to do it and was very close to not doing it after he lost the election in 2020. There's no reason to believe now, if he were to win, faced with a term limit, that he would leave and seek yeah. power. There's absolutely yeah. no reason to believe that. There's every reason to believe that he would follow the path of those uh, who he adores. Yeah. And I think this does, again, we've talked about this in terms of this dynamic and the stakes and the importance of those who want to protect democracy in this country. And I don't want to just limit that to to Democrats and progressives, because again, I believe there is a a majority of Americans who, who, who stand to, to protect democracy. It's a question of if they come out and if they come out in the right states, given how the electoral college is skewed and biased in a way that uh, just winning the popular vote is not enough. And, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night is the challenge of drawing these connections. Again, it's something that generally has served Americans well, this resilience to believe that things aren't really as bad as they might be. And in this case, no, it's time to break yeah. the glass. Yeah. It, well, it, it's, it's, it's actually worse. It's actually, actually much worse than people yeah. think. And, you know, I'll tell you, I talked about the Dobbs decision um, and, and, you know, overturning Roe versus Wade and removing abortion rights protections in this country. One thing that makes me nervous about that is where we've seen the greatest impact from that is in ballot initiatives, not surprisingly, in places like Kansas and Michigan and and elsewhere where they've had actual constitutional men, where, where that happens, you see turnout go through the roof. You see younger people coming out. Um, you see Republicans coming out to vote to protect abortion rights, interestingly. But what we've seen is campaigns having a harder time drawing the connection to say, okay, well, but if you vote for these Republican candidates, you're effectively doing the same thing and banning abortion rights. And we, We've had a hard time. In some cases, you look at what Gretchen Whitmer did in Michigan. Again, it was on the ballot there, but what she was able to do to take it even to another level where they were successful on drawing that connection. So I bring that up in this context that to make that connection to voters is challenging. Even though it's right there in front of us, there's this amount of denial that, well, but these people wouldn't do that. They wouldn't allow that to happen. And when it comes to this notion of protecting our democracy, which has existed for so long now, 
um, that denial is particularly dangerous. The, what's different this time is that there are many Republicans, certainly MAGA Republicans and, you know, merchandise-wearing Republicans who, who don't care for democracy anymore. They're kind of done with it. And, you know, they think it's exclusive to Democrats. It's, it's, a, it's a Democrat thing in the same way that climate change is a Democrat thing. And that, you know, they've been brainwashed to think that America will be better without it. Is it therefore important maybe to rebrand democracy? Because firstly, I actually think a lot of people couldn't define it even if they were asked. But, but secondly, it does sound a lot like a Democrat kind of offshoot, uh, not just by nature of the spelling. And I think that, you know, therefore it might be better to talk about what you will lose if you vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I think that's right on the mark um, because uh, you're right. When we look at what Republicans have actually said they're okay with, right? When they've said, well, let's, let's raise the voting age to 25. Let's make it harder for people to vote, you know, so on and so forth. You look at what they've done around democracy in general, these, these bit by bit erosions that they are seeking to enact around the country. Republicans have been absolutely not just fine with it. They've enacted it. They've executed it. So, the, the notion that they uh, that they will stand in the tracks, these Trumpists uh, that lay down in the tracks and stop him from uh, getting rid of our democracy. I think to your point, like a lot of them don't really care. There's also an element of nihilism there. Yeah. And I think that's especially yeah. among younger Republicans where to them, they just don't care. They just anyone who's going to change the status quo in a radical way is just fine with them, especially young white men. And owning the lips as well. That's very important, oh, yeah. them, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's this notion that people have become overly sensitive, overly woke, so to speak, which is, again, a term I hate, but it's a term they use. Um, and that, therefore, well, let's just go back to some sort of world where it's the survival of the fittest and let's see them suffer. Yeah. There's that, that nihilistic tendency that is frightening. And so, yeah, I, I, I do think we need to be careful and we do need to be thoughtful in terms of how we frame this. And people do want to, uh, to a large extent, protect the status quo, at least for the things that they like. I mean, it's the, the core notion of conservatism. Uh, that, that's the irony of this, isn't it? That, that really, you know, Democrats should be called Republicans now. Right. Because they're the only ones who care, seem to care for maintaining the republic. And, and we can call republicans i don't know the, the 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 annihilators you know the people that brought down american democracy and and the institutions attached to it well and we're seeing just more one by one in terms of the actual window right in terms of the center of gravity in the republican party a yeah. party that did have um a, a a center core not that long ago of moderate voices who uh, their conservatism was generally uh, limited to economic issues and also social issues, but they were progressing in that area. And then Trump yeah. really flipped the switch there and changed things. And, you know, like when you uh, see Kevin McCarthy uh, over the last few days announcing his resignation, 
uh, you know, again, by no means a great uh, moderate, but yeah. in the context of today's Republican Party, yes, a moderate. Yeah, well, he's 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 done, and we're seeing a, a, a massive number of of um, Congress people who are not seeking re-election, and many of them have said because of this very issue that the Republican Party is not the party of of their grandparents. Let, let's. I always like to end on a slightly optimistic tone, and I do think that we have reason to be optimistic because. Whilst we can be in the mindset that Trump could win and we shouldn't let go of that, as you said, doing away with Roe versus Wade, just that really is a very good reason why Democrats could win, especially as Donald Trump has, is quoted as saying that women should be punished for having an abortion, especially when this poor woman in, in Texas you know, had to go to the courts and to, to get an abortion for a, an unviable pregnancy. And now Ken Paxton there is saying that he will take any doctor involved with this and, and prosecute them. I mean, this is this is terrifying. You know, this is the dystopian future that we we feared and we were warned about. But young people could be the solution to all of our problems, right? And I, you know, I I think about the the Parkland kids and how they mobilized after the mass shooting at the school and and just that sense of like there is a new generation now. Because those kids are not kids anymore. They are a voting age. They are people who get it. And, and younger people increasingly have, by nature of being worldly, whether it just be through their smartphone, let alone traveling, they sense that, that progressive values are the values of the whole world, not just of a political party in a country uh, in, a, in the Western Hemisphere. It's one of the few things that does give me hope and allows me to re remain optimistic these days. And and if I can share a, a, a brief story there, you mentioned the Parkland kids. And then uh, in 2018, I went with my daughters to the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C. Um, and was just so struck by their bravery and their poise um, and their power. Um, and their how intelligence they, as well. Their intelligence. Yeah. It's it, it just incredible. And they're there was this chant that they led again and again and again throughout, which was vote them out again and again and again at the rally. It was in the context of the 2018 election and voting out those who would stand in the way of passing common sense gun reform. And it was met with the same skepticism from older Americans and older, I mean, basically everybody um, that you would always see. And I thought, you know, something about this that feels, it feels different. And so we started tracking voter registration data to see, well, look, if something is different, you'll see something different in the data because people always dismiss younger people and they say, well, they don't vote. They don't vote. They kind of pat them on the head. It's nice that they have these thoughts and ideas, but they're not going to vote. And we saw that in a reaction to the March for Our Lives among the mainstream media. And over the two months, three months after the election, uh, I'm sorry, after the March for Our Lives, we tracked uh, that voter registration data. And what we saw was remarkable. Younger people were registering to vote at rates that we hadn't seen before. They were reacting, they were standing up, and they were preparing to vote them out. We actually released a study showing this happening in June of 2018. And the Washington Post actually uh, published their own rebuttal to our study, <laughs> <laughs> saying that, well, they're registering, but they probably won't vote. That's effectively what we we're saying. They were saying we released another study showing that it was still happening through Labor Day. Uh, still, people rejected it. And then when the early vote started, we said, "Look, younger people are voting early in rates we've never seen before." People still rejected it. 
And in the end, the youth vote surge in 2018 was what delivered for Democrats. It what It's what made that year a blue wave election year. And it's what set up the 2020 election and, and sweeping Trump out. Um, and and th- that was before Dobbs. And you see what they've done. And I hate, I absolutely hate that we have to rely on this generation to save us. But at the same time, I love the work they are doing. I love the organizing they're doing. You had Victor Sheehan some time ago. You know, yeah. he, among many others, just done incredible work. Um, and they can if they continue this momentum that they have built. Uh, then, then they can make this an election that rejects MAGA, and and turns the tide for this country. A word that I come back to a lot on the show is is civility. You know, wanting America to be a civilized country again, and and it's hard when there's you know four hundred and twenty million guns in circulation and and mass shootings that don't happen in any other country of the world where books are being banned because they're teaching sex education or you know supporting people who need guidance it it, it and obviously the rhetoric of a, of a fascist kind of former leader disgraced former president who is up in front of judges every other day and and i happen to personally think that the judicial system in the U.S. is not designed for people like him. You know, aside from his claim of presidential immunity, there is this respect for the office that the idea of even putting him in jail is very difficult for people to to digest. And so I personally don't think that the judiciary will protect America from Donald Trump. I don't personally think he'll end up in a, in a federal prison or anywhere else. And so that is why we have to be you know, very vocal about what is changing and why we want America to go back to being civilized. Do you ever think back to what life was like in 2015, 2016, when Barack Obama was president and this whole Trump thing hadn't happened yet? All the time. <laughs> All the time. I think there's this refrain in my head that's make politics boring again. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's some people where that's all they want. Is, is it, wouldn't it be nice for the average American to be able to spend weeks on end not knowing what the president is doing yeah, and not caring about it and just feeling like things are just okay, that we've got competent leadership. And, you know, that's what we have had with President Biden. But you've also had the presence looming of Donald Trump right, um, attacking from all sides and the mega Republicans. Um, well, just lying about Biden, lying exactly. that he's corrupt, lying that he's senile, lying that he's, you know, in cahoots. I mean, all of this stuff is 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 made up. Well, it must but, be exhausting for them I, when you think yeah. of the world that has been imagined for Republicans. Because right. I, I sometimes try to put myself, as frightening as that can be, in their shoes in terms of imagine if you believed this, if you believed yeah. the QAnon stuff, if you believed yeah. that Joe Biden was running a crime syndicate out of the White House, if you literally believed all these things, as I think many of them actually do just because they've found themselves, they've really immersed themselves in this media bubble where Fox News is among the most rational voices and is still incredibly yeah. irrational, but you know, Newsmax and others that just, you know, they they radicalize these individuals. It's gotta and, be and exhausting. Twitter. 
not Twitter, to mention yeah. the, the town square where we used to have political discourse Unfortunately. now has become extremist and anti-Semitic, amongst other things. And, Unfortunately. And, but it must be exhausting yeah. for those people, and it must be a, a frightening world to exist in. And I think yeah. if they had the opportunity to take a step back and to have a break from it where they aren't inundated, and I don't know how realistic that is, but I do think if this election became what it could be, and it, and, and it became a, a, a unquestionable rebuke of MAGA Republicanism, where they lose by, by, by wide margins. It could yeah. be that if the people who didn't vote in 2020 voted, it would be that. And that could change things. And I think for those people, hopefully their lives would get better when they, they, they eventually aren't surrounded by that because it's no longer profitable to manipulate these people. That's really the crux of this, isn't it? That, that these MAGA people have been voting against their own interests. And, and if it wasn't for tribalism, they actually would have a better quality of life under Joe Biden or some other Democrat president. No, no question. And, and you know, the economic indicators li line up in terms of when you look at jobs, when you look at inflation, when you look at any of the economic indicators, almost all the jobs that have been created in this country over the last uh, uh, three decades have been created under Democratic presidents. And then every now and then you have the Republican who comes along and 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 things fall apart. And then a Democrat comes back in and puts it back together. And so, yeah, yeah. They, they've experienced this. They've had this lived experience where Democrats have been able to represent their interests. You know, I have some hope when you see what United Auto Workers were able to accomplish through their their strike and their great leadership and to be able to get a contract with great wages and and and, and benefits and so on and so forth that more working class Americans look at that and realize that Democrats and progressives are fighting for their best interests and Republicans, whereas Donald Trump was going to a non-union park shop right. <laughs> at the same time. And, yeah. uh, and Republicans are not. Okay. We, we have to finish, but I'm, I'm so grateful for, for the analysis. And I, I, like you, I, I trust that the American people will do the right thing. Let's hope so. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay. My thanks to Tom Bonya. I'm Anthony Davis. Don't forget to support me and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five minute news. And there's the five minute news daily podcast drops every morning. You can hear me tell you what's happening around the world while you make your morning coffee. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and more factual news stories to discuss on the five minute news weekend show with Midas Touch. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, 
please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.